welcome to Coming Up for Air, the Allies in Recovery podcast, with hosts Laurie McDougall, Kayla Solomon, and Dominique Simone Levine. Okay, Kayla, so today's topic is going to be how do you negotiate when your loved one is coming home from treatment or maybe they've been out of the house in a recovery home, but now they're coming home for some reason, they're coming back home. How do you negotiate or create boundaries around them living in the home? And I think this is a great topic. Yeah. I really want to hear what your thoughts are on it, but I often work with families that struggle with this particular issue and struggle to understand what are boundaries and what are rules and what your loved one is actually capable of doing and how do you take all of this into consideration when your loved one's coming home and now you're negotiating the circumstances as to what it is you can live with when you're all living together again. I actually think this is a very fundamental time to do this because this is when you have all the power. They're not there. You're not trying to get rid of somebody. Before you do anything with them, you need to sit down with yourself and think about what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked, what's been unacceptable to you, what has made you feel insane, what you don't want to go through again, and really... You need to be clear about that because with all negotiations, you cannot do that unless you're really thinking about yourself first. You don't want to be in a step down position with them where you're saying, oh, your behavior needs to be this acceptable. And so one of the things that we talked about this past week in the group actually was that there's a book called Duct Tape Parenting. And that book, it's hard to do, but it's interesting because it really is all about having the person engage with you about planning natural consequences. So I loved it for that reason, where you're actually setting up time to talk to people, but the time, the biggest negotiation is going to happen is when they come back and right before they come back. So here's the way I think about this. For one thing, you want to get that person, your loved one engaged in this conversation. Okay, so it's not that you're making pronouncements or telling them what they you can do or not do, but it's like, all right, in the past, this is what's happened. And so what I would like to know is if you relapse, if you put a hole in the wall, if you start smoking in the house, all these things that I don't want to happen, but you're saying you're not going to do and that's great. But what are the consequences that you think are fair and right? If you do those things. So what happens is they're the ones coming up with the consequences. And what has always been remarkable to me is once you engage with that person, it's fascinating to hear what they think the consequences should be. Yeah. You know, and if they say, I don't know, you're saying, no, 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 we can't do this. We're not moving forward until you let me know what you think is fair if that happens. I agree with you. And I work with families as well. And we talk about trying to make it, I call it a collaborative effort, right? That if you invite someone in to collaborate and figure out a solution that they feel they're being taken, their their wants or needs or thoughts or whatever it is, is being considered. And they're actually a, an active participant in finding a solution. Sometimes they come up with crazy thoughts or 
family members are worried about doing this because they are afraid their loved one is going to come out with something that it's just like, I'm not going to do that. But that's not what this is about, actually. This is about just inviting them in and, and getting them to be an active participant. And it also opens them up a little bit more to now hear what it is your needs and your expectations are when they move back in, right? When they come back home. And I love what you're saying because I agree with you. And, and I did this kind of naturally with my son without having any understanding of what it was that I was doing. But this is exactly what I did multiple times when he left and came back. Each time he came back, I knew I was in, like you said, I was in a power position and I was constantly considering my own needs and what was driving me absolutely batty before. What things were happening that were causing me to behave in ways that wasn't helpful and how can I address those, but also listening and hearing my son as he, you know, left and came back and left and came back. So I was in the power position. He needs something from me. He wants something from me. He wants to come and live with my husband and I, this is just an opportunity for me to get my needs out there. And that's what a relationship is. That's what a relationship is. It's about addressing everybody's needs. Yes. And you know, what's interesting listening to you, Lori, is that when we are talking about the craft model, we are actually teaching people how to be in relationship. It's not just that we're learning it, which we are, by the way, but part of the therapeutic process of craft, because we've determined that if you're really fully engaged in craft, then you're actually in a therapeutic process with your loved one. You're teaching them how to engage. You're teaching them how to think about themselves. You're creating natural consequences, which is exactly what life is about. And so one of the things that we're modeling is that there's two people or at least two people in this relationship and that we're going back and forth navigating this. How do we do this? What can I do? And so it's not just, okay, so what if you relapse? That's the most obvious one. But so many times what people are struggling with is when their loved one is doing nothing. Right. It's not like they're punching the holes in the walls or they're like getting into car crashes. It's that their loved one has gotten out of treatment. They have all these great plans. And then what really winds up happening is they wind up coming home from wherever they are and going into their room and not doing anything. They're not in treatment. They might not be working. They're not communicating. They're isolating. And let's face it, that's one of the scariest feelings that you could possibly have as a family member that you're watching your person do nothing when they made all these promises about what they were going to do. And so we need to talk about this. Okay. So what we're going to be saying to them is what happens if you come home and you're living here again and you do nothing, you wind up not doing, not going to therapy. So you have to address the knots, not just what bad behavior you're doing, but the absence of progression, the absence of anything positive. And so let's talk about that. What are possibilities? You know, you're going to ask them what they think. What do I do if you're doing nothing? That's the first question is, what are the consequences for doing nothing? What should I be doing if you're doing nothing? What's my place here? If I see you just going back into your room and locking yourself in, and you might say, and this is what I like to do is, they're like, well, you could, what if you're depressed? And you're so depressed and you tell me you're depressed and you can't 
you can't do anything. What do, what do you want me to do in those moments? Because look at that. That's the process of the person thinking about themselves. And so this is a great gift that you're giving them. Now that you're not depressed, what do we need to do? What actions need to be taken if you are? Right. And you're going to hear things like, well, you can't do anything. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. So I can't do anything. But my needs are, I need to know then what steps you're going to take, right? If I can't do anything, that's fine. But what steps are you going to take, right? Like what, what's your process? And I need to know about that because I want to support it. Yeah. So, so here's the story I like to do with this one. So it's like, okay, you're telling me, all right, you wind up being depressed and you lock yourself in your room and you're doing nothing. There's nothing I could do. And so I'm waiting for you to be motivated to do something. I just want you to know that might not work for me. And so you, this is the negotiation. Just want you to know that's interesting that that's the parameters here, but I'm actually not agreeing to that because then I have this person in my house who is doing nothing. And that means I have to do everything. You don't have to participate in anything. I have to have no expectations of you. That's not going to work for me. So let's keep going on this negotiation. I totally agree with you. I guess I just word it differently when when I'm with family members, right? And, I'm, and we're talking about this because I often will try and tell them, look, it's a relationship in your boundaries. Your limits are, no, I need everybody in this house to be working towards bettering themselves, whatever that looks like. So my needs are that, you know, in order for us to be living in the house is not that people are doing nothing. We all have to be doing something. Otherwise, this isn't going to work very well. Okay, so you've told me your piece of it, but now I'm telling you my piece of it. So now can you go back and look at it? Now I need you to take my needs into account without saying to that person, well, I need you to take my needs into account, but you're letting them know that I'm taking my own needs into account and saying, okay, I'm going to need more than just you going in your room and sitting in your room and doing absolutely nothing and not getting a job. And oftentimes I hear family members say, yeah, but he, he or she struggles with anxiety. I'm like, okay, well, this is the perfect time to address the anxiety that's the barrier to getting out there and getting a job or going to school or doing whatever it is or going to groups or going to counseling. Whatever it is, now's the time to address it. Finding ways to get into that discussion that it's got to be consistent because this is another thing that happens. Our loved ones make these promises. Oh yeah, I'm going to go to counseling. Yes, yes, yes. And I believe that oftentimes they're all gung-ho in the beginning, right? They're all gung-ho. Nope, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then they get home and it's not as easy for them as they saw it being when they were not living in the house. And so maybe there's like, they go out, they find a counselor, they go to one meeting, they don't like the counselor, that's it, they give up, right? And it's like, no, that has to be addressed before they come home. I need consistency. I need to know that you're going to get up every day and go out and look for a job and then go to the job. Or I need to know that you're going to be attending counseling and consistently attending counseling, whatever that looks like, because it could mean you, you don't like this counselor. That's fine. That's absolutely perfectly fine. But that means we've got to start researching another counselor. 
but these are my needs. And just like what you're talking about, Kayla, making it very collaborative. We're going to hash this out. We're going to really hash this out. And what's it going to look like before we're going to put this plan in place? Right. And I think jumping off on what you said, part of the collaboration is I'm here to help you, but you have to ask me. I don't want to nag you because that's the thing that we've always done. I'm somebody and, you know, everybody who can hear my style, it's like, I'm very direct. So to me, it's like, I don't want to be a nag. I don't want to be the one that's saying, come on, come on, come on. So I need to know what part of this you're going to be doing. Because if you don't do, then that puts me in nagging position. So I don't want to be in that position. I want to be comfortable. I want to be connected with you. I don't want to be supportive, but I need you to initiate with what you need. So for example, if the first counselor doesn't work out, I'm happy to help you find somebody else, but I'm not going to say, oh, you should go get somebody else. And did you look and whatever? Because then we're in that nagging thing again. So if it doesn't work out, what I'm asking you to do is to say, can you help me find somebody else? That's the collaboration piece. Right. And on top of it, Kayla, as soon as you start to be the one to, did you do this? Did you do that? When are you doing this? I didn't see you doing that. Then it's actually, well, so now you've taken over the manager position. Yes. Now you're going to micromanage. That's a lot of pressure on your loved one and can actually make it very discouraging and make it very difficult to actually manage life, if that makes sense. That's when you start to hear, why are you doing, you're always trying to control me. You're always trying to tell me what to do. And that is stuff that we want to really back away from. Kraft tells us that. That's not where we want to go with this. Not to mention the fact that really as family members, as parents of adult children, it's about independence. It's about helping our loved ones to be independent, not managing. Well, just realize that whether this is your spouse or your brother or your sister, that tool of asking and kind of probing what they have and haven't done, what their plans are. I actually, my belief is it doesn't work for anybody in your life. Nobody, everybody is completely annoyed. If you're like, did you do this? Did you do this? Because what you're basically conveying is you're incompetent. You're a failure. You haven't done what you said. You, I don't trust you. You're a screw up. You know, and, and it doesn't matter how functional or dysfunctional people are. That's how that kind of line of questioning is perceived. It just is. And it's funny because I have been known to do those things. Oh, me too. <laughs> you know, so it's not like I am not without sin on this one. But but what I'm fascinated by is how consistently ineffective that is. <laughs> and I'm I'm looked at the bad as the bad guy. But if I do that, so I'm like, okay, don't do and and I get I get corrected with that. And so I am working so hard to just say, hey, tell me what you're up to or what's going on. And it's torture not to ask those questions. It's absolute torture. So I am not saying by you not doing that, that that's an easy thing to do. Because it's like, are they in therapy? Are they going to meetings? What did they use? And who are they hanging out with? And that kind of stuff. It just doesn't work. You have to come up with other ways of interacting. And then somehow you actually find out this information. The best is that if you're just engaging with people, they talk to you. But that's one of the reasons that I look at behavior. Because if I'm micromanaging what you do, what you do, what you do, then I'm offensive. But if I'm watching how you're interacting, 
you know, when you're coming and going, what's happening, how much time you're spending in your room, how negative or whatever you are, then I actually can engage on that level. And I'm discussing the behavior, not what you're doing about it. I do want to touch on, because this is a much deeper topic, what we're talking about here, because oftentimes family members think that when we say you want to set up your own boundaries and create your own boundaries, they take that as meaning I've got to set up these rules in the house. So I'm trying to think of how to how to describe it. It's like, okay, if you move back into the house, you cannot be disrespectful to me. You can't talk disrespectful to me. And I feel that that's where we want to get to. That's the ultimate goal. But setting up a rule like that, one, it's not really a boundary. And two, it's not very manageable. It's not manageable on your part. It's not manageable on your loved one's part. And oftentimes how it goes is like this. If you continue to treat me like that and you treat me awful and you're disrespectful and that's not going to happen anymore. And if you do, you're out. You're out of the house. I'm like, this is destined for disaster because it doesn't get at the root of the way you're being treated. It doesn't help the situation. It makes it very complicated because let's say they start treating you disrespectfully. Asking someone to leave is really, really hard. So it's one of those things that that has to be addressed way before they they even come home. So it's got to be what are the outlets or what are the resources available to you on how to communicate better and encouraging that. Like, how are we as family members going to communicate and have conversations where we're not, things aren't blowing up, we're not calling each other's names and we're not being disrespectful. We need to address that and figure out what our plan is ahead of time before moving back. And what are we gonna do when that happens versus you can't do this or that. You know, the therapist in me is having this little discussion, which is that sometimes when people start getting disrespectful, and this is certainly not all the time, it's it's a response to the nagging. And so in this process, it's so interesting listening to you, in this process, what you want to do is look at, okay, how am I communicating right now? Because it's really easy to say, oh, they're disrespectful, they're terrible, whatever. And I'm not saying that that's not happening, but I notice in my own life that when I'm in my anxiety and I'm communicating my questioning and my 25 questions and my the inquisition, as I like to call it, or my doubt of the person that's when I get the disrespect back. That's when I get the upset back. That's when I get that back. So the first thing I'm going to do is look at myself. What did I do in that interaction? And I am not saying that I'm at fault because I don't believe in fault. I believe that it's a dynamic and I need to look at my part because I get to work on that. It's a dysfunction of the relationship is how I see it. Yes. I have a part in that. And so I want to look at that. It's kind of like I think about when I was younger, I was terrible to my mother. Absolutely terrible. Like I would call her stupid and whatever when I was an adolescent. And what she would always say to me, you don't talk to your friends like that. That's what that was for line. How come you talk to me like that? You don't talk to your friends like that. And what I would say is, well, my friends are not as stupid as you. And I was a good kid, but I was so 
angry at my mother for some reason I'm not aware of. I think it's developmentally appropriate on some level. But one of the things that I reacted to is this kind of sense of her feeling victimized by me, which absolutely irked me to no end and got me riled up even more. And so that's one thing I want to caution about, because if you're like, oh, my God, you can't talk to me like that. Oh, my God. And you go into that kind of vulnerable victimy state of like, oh, how could you do this to me? You wind up becoming more of a target. So part of the boundaries that we're talking about is you holding on to yourself and know that whatever they're sending to you is obnoxious but you still have power. You don't need to feel victimized. You don't need to go into vulnerability. You want to just be clear. It's like, this conversation's not working for me. I'm going to go. And so it's more like getting neutral when in response to that. And then you walk out because that keeps your power is neutral and leaving, not engaging and trying to get the person to stop. And I also believe in letting the, that person know you'll come back. Yes. Because the whole goal when you walk away from the conversation is for you to analyze your piece in the issue, right? In your piece in that communication, so that when you do come back, you're more helpful in the conversation and you're kind of changing your approach to the situation so that you can be more helpful in that. But yeah, that, that, this is what I hear all the time. I hear this, this staunch, well, we can't do this and we can't do that. We can't. And I'm like, oh, this to me is a disaster waiting to happen. It's all going to fall apart. No, this is a time. And, and you're the one who said it, it. These are your words, Kayla. This is a time of negotiation. Yeah. How are we going to ne negotiate? What's going to happen? Where are we going to go with this? What's your piece in it? What's my piece in it? What are your needs and what are our needs? And let's take it from there and adjusting, right? Adjusting to it because things are never going to go smoothly. No. Never, never, never. And you can't beat yourself up when they don't go well. Cause I think a lot of people do that. Oh, I'm supposed to do this. I did this wrong. It's not about wrong. It's about really getting better at staying on task with this because it's not a catastrophe to have these little interactions or even big ones. It's a moment. So the way I like to see it is that it's a moment that if you could just kind of carve it out and then leave it and process it, that you get to go back with it differently. So for example, in the example that we used, I might walk away and come back and say, listen, I realized, you know, I started getting into my, my 20 questions here and that's obnoxious and I'm sorry. I, I know that that's a, an obnoxious way to interact. And I, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. So I just wanted to come back and apologize to you. And I'll often just sit period, end of story, because I'm modeling the behavior that I'm hoping the other person is going to do. Are they going to do it? I don't know. But it, I'll tell you, it makes me feel better because then I don't have to walk away feeling guilty. And that's not why you're going in and saying what you're saying. That's not why you go in and you apologize for the things that your participation, you go in to those things just because it makes you a better person. Exactly. Regardless of what the other person does. It's not about that. All of this, all of this, all of craft, everything that we're doing and everything that we're talking about today is about relationship building. Yes. It's all about relationship building. And that's what boundaries actually are about is how to build a relationship. And a relationship is one where everybody's needs, wants, thoughts, everybody is considered. 
everybody. And it is about negotiating constantly, never stopping that negotiation process. The word for the day for me is catastrophizing. I don't know why it just came up this morning. So I'm going to throw it in possibly inappropriately. But to me, when we are the most upset, we are catastrophizing because somebody's talking to us in a particular way or the behavior is happening that we don't like and we're going to the worst possible scenario. Catastrophizing is when you take whatever information you're looking at and you're going from A to Z with it so that you're like, oh my God, this is happening, which means this is happening, which means this is happening, which is mean. So you're not in the present. You're flipping back to the past and the future, which is the catastrophizing part. You're completely hijacked into the worst possible scenario of this. And there is no way to navigate that well, because that's the ultimate dysregulation. So part of it is that we want to back ourselves down. And that's why the negotiation at the beginning gives us the way to walk in here. So I just want to point out that when we made this agreement for you to come back in, you said that you were going to do blah, 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 blah. And I just want to check in about that. I'd like to know what's going on with that. Or even you said that you were going to be doing chores around the house and the trash is still sitting here. So do you remember what you said the natural consequence was going to be that what what I should be doing if you're not doing those things? Do you remember what you said? And then you start with that. You don't say, remember you said that I'm supposed to do this? No. Do you remember what you said I should do in this situation? You want to get them talking. Yes. And then it's like, okay, so you're not doing the trash. So what do, shall I do the thing that we talked about? Or would you like to do the trash? Where do we go from here? Right. And so it's this constant back and forth, open communication. And I'm, I'm hearing in my head, all the people that are saying, well, my spouse, my son, my daughter is going to not respond to that. But you want to do your part of this. Okay. And then what happens is if things get untenable, and they're so bad for you, which is those limits that we're talking about, that's when you need to go to a different plan and say, okay, I just want you to know that this isn't really working out for me the way things are going. So I'm going to give you a couple of weeks to think about this or do things differently. And then we're going to have to go to the other plan, which is that living here is not really the plan. So we'll have to come up with another plan, uh, another living space. And we'll take a look at that. Yeah. Enough time. I don't expect this to happen instantly, but if things are not different in the next week or two, then we're going to go to a different plan. Yep. So you have choices here. And I, this is one thing I say all the time. You have choices here. Based on your choices, I will be making my own choices. That's the line that has saved my life. I'm not doing this to you. Based on the decisions and the, the actions that you take, I'm going to be making some decisions of my own. Two different things. Right. Great conversation. Can you go ahead and give us just a quick summary? What did we talk about? So basically what we're talking about is when your loved one wants to return to your home, either from treatment or a difficult situation or whatever, that's the time that you want to meet with them before they come home. And you want to kind of iron out with them what the expectations are, what the plan is, and also their thoughts about what, based on things that have happened in the past, what the consequences should be and how you should proceed based on their behavior. But you're doing it in an, an open communication, open interaction with them actually participating in this process. Yep. Negotiation and collaboration. And constant communication. 
yep. and that you stay on top of it at the beginning. You don't just go all silent and then two months later, you're like, hey, what happened here? You want to have regular interaction when they first come in and keep it going so that it's not out of nowhere. This was great. Thank you, Kayla. I just want to remind our listeners that we have a 10-day challenge on the Allies in Recovery website. If you complete half of the modules in a 10-day period of time, you qualify for a free one-day training, typically worth about $250. Hope to see you there. All right, Laurie, I will see you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.